if you know me, you know how much I love spicy food. It's part of who I am. Really, it's part of who I am. For those who don't know me, I am born and raised in Chongqing. Back when I was born, Chongqing still city, part of Sichuan province. Later in 1998, it becomes a city that's governed by the central government directly. I didn't know this. Yeah, it's like Beijing. It's like Washington D.C. They're not part of the state. They're not part of the province. In Chongqing and Sichuan, we say Chuan Yu Bu Fen Jia. Chuan is Sichuan, Yu is Chongqing. Where it's saying that we're still one family because we have been together for so long. <laughs> Even though it's no longer the province, we're still in the big family and at home. When we did about sea spiracy deep dive, Danny talked about how food is culture. And when she was saying that, I was like, "Yes, I get this because that is that's what it is for me at home. We bond over food. You can just tell how excited I am about spicy food and Sichuan food. But I often felt that I'm unable to translate the beauty of Sichuan food because growing up, I obviously learned these things in Mandarin." I don't know their English name. That's a long way leading to this week's recommendation. It's a food documentary by Anthony Bourdain, Parts Unknown, specifically season eight, episode four, Sichuan. Ah,、oh, I'm just so happy. First of all, they spell Sichuan correctly, like actually S I C H U A N instead、Wait. of the American way. Oh, with the Z. Yeah, that's American way. Oh,、uh, yeah. I think it just to help the American to pronounce it, because even though they also use the twenty six alphabet, but the thing pronounced very differently, almost like how in Spanish、mm. J J. It's ha ha. I love how this episode they shoot in Chengdu, which is the capital city of Sichuan. Anthony will showcase the local food. He brought his friend. Eric Rapper with him, who cannot eat spicy food, which is so funny to watch because there's nothing in Sichuan it's not spicy. It showcases local street food, even the ones that a lot of Western people will be like, "Ew." For example, Anthony and Eric both ate the local delicious food, the rabbit head. Oh, right.、It's、Wait, have you had this? Spicy? Yes, I have. It's like、My、an mom, actual head. Yes, it's just literally the rabbit has soaked, marinated in all the spiciness. Oh, so good! I know this makes me sound like a really bad person to eat a rabbit head. No, I don't think so. But <laughs> I just—I've never heard of this dish before. Right, that's why I like about the show. It's not shying away about things that probably controversial to a lot of Western culture. Yet they accept it and they eat it and they appreciate how delicious it is. They also talk about the main elements of Sichuan cuisine, which is ma and la. Ma is this tinglish feeling that numbs your mouth. This is the part when I was talking about how I don't know how to translate. So in Sichuan, we have this specific pepper. It's called chao tian jiao. I cannot translate that, but when I watched this episode. Guess what its English name is? The Sichuan peppercorn. No, this is a pepper, not the peppercorn. Their English name is facing heaven chili. What? <laughs> it's like that... a literal translation because Chao Tian Zhao means facing the sky, like facing heaven. Oh wow, that's a very beautiful name. <laughs> <laughs> But I don't want to tell too much about this episode because I want everyone to watch it. So they can learn about my hometown food. What I love about it so much. Okay, so you feel like the episode accurately represented 
Sichuan food. Yes, they also interview local people and they ask the local people to explain things to them. That's one thing I love about it. Instead of just having Americans walk around telling people this is what Sichuan food is, they actually ask people what is your local culture, how is the food bonding you, how is the Sichuan cuisine come about. I actually learned something new about it as well. Okay, I'll definitely check it out. I love food shows. Oh, man, I thought I was pretty knowledgeable about Sichuan food, but then you brought up the rabbit head, and <laughs> I already I got thrown off. You know, you wouldn't like find that at like a Sichuan restaurant in New York City. Yeah, or I think even other parts in China that I've been to, I have not seen that on the menu. No, it's only Chengdu. Every single time when my dad used to travel because of work to Chengdu, my mom will be like, "Can you please?" Take five or six. Interesting. I'm trying not to be grossed out or judge it because I've eaten some really weird shit myself. Don't knock it till you try it. Exactly. But in my mind, I'm already thinking. But if it's just the head, there can't be that much meat. Like, what are you, what are you eating? Anyways, <laughs> maybe I'll go it's there. The, and it's try the flavor. It I mean, honestly, you don't want too much because it's so spicy. Yeah, I do love spicy food, but I can't. Really handle spicy food. I feel like you probably can because you grew up in that area. I'm getting weaker. Oh no! London water, <laughs> it's making me weak. London food, it's making me weak. The other day, Danny and I were chatting over text message, and we were talking about how. Many times we want to leave a day with this butterfly in our stomach feeling, because usually that's a sign that we have a great chemistry with the person we were on this day with. I used to believe that too, but lately, I've been thinking: Is that really true? Because for me personally, often the people give me the most butterflies from first day ends up being not so great. Should a butterfly in the stomach feeling actually being a red flag? Do you feel what I'm saying? Well, yes, because we talked about this over text, <laughs> as you've just shared. Also, how single do we sound right now? <laughs> <laughs> Having conversations with each other over text about how we want to have the butterfly feelings. But yeah, I think this came about because I was trying to get over someone I went on a date with, and I was saying how. Rare it is for me personally to feel the butterfly and rainbows feeling, which is essentially, I think, just excitement, but also nervousness about someone.、Mm. That feeling of, wow, I really like this person. I wonder if they like me back. I wonder how they feel about me. And then getting again excited and nervous and anxious every time this person. Texts you or contacts you, you just get so happy, and it really does feel like this person is controlling my mood. If they don't respond, then it's like, <laughs> oh, what did I do wrong? Like, why aren't they messaging me? What's going on? And in your mind, you run through all these scenarios. Like, does something happen to them? Yeah. Maybe they like someone else. Maybe I said something wrong. Let me read through all my previous texts. And then when they do text you, it's like you won the freaking lottery, and I could float on that feeling for like several hours until <laughs> the anxiety comes back. So I was telling Mickey how it's pretty uncommon for me to feel that way, just because I don't. Well, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing now, because we're debating if it's a red flag. 
But I was saying how I was taking that feeling to be a sign that I must really like this person because not everyone can make me feel that way. And then Mickey brought up a really good point that, well, if someone's making you feel a little anxious, isn't that technically a bad thing? Yes. This leads me to today's topic, attachment theory. I don't know if you know this, but this is developed over a couple decades by several psychologists. Isn't there a book called Attachment Styles or something like that? Yes, there's many books actually. So it's not just one person who came up with this concept. So this is researched by developmental psychologist Mary Anworth in 1960s and 70s, underpinning the basic concept about the attachment theory. Later on, after preliminary papers from 1958 onwards, John Bowlby, a British psychologist, published a full theory named Attachment and Loss. He actually is the first psychologist officially established this theory, and he described attachment as a lasting psychological connectedness between human beings. And then, like you mentioned, there's a lot of books. There's two books, both named Attached. Often, they、mm. are published by author who have a MD or a doctor in psychology degree. And there's more people specialized in attachment theory. That's really interesting. I've definitely heard about the book. Well, I guess one of the books Attached. <laughs> I don't know which one. I definitely heard about the book. I have not read it, but I've had people explain kind of the general concepts within that book. I personally, to be honest, like don't know that much about the attachment styles. I generally know of the four, but even when people were describing the four different kinds, I remember each one that was being read out. I would think, "Oh, I'm that one." No way, I'm that one. No, I'm that one. So. I am kind of curious to learn more about this concept, and you know, being a narcissist, like where do I, <laughs> where do I fit in? Which one am I? Well, I haven't read any of the books either. So how I learned about this was YouTube algorithm, and it's also very telling when YouTube is recommending you psychologist channel. Stop telling me I have a problem. Essentially, I learned a lot of things I know now through the channel. Personal Development School, Taeus Gibson. That's the channel name. We'll also link on our description, like we always do. Taeus Gibson. She has a major in psychology, and has a lot of professional credentials. But she's not psychologist, and I'm not psychologist either. So listen with caution. And I'm not either, in case <laughs> anyone's wondering. Yeah, I find her YouTube channel helpful. And I actually find a quiz from her website, Personal Development School. I do want to clarify; she does sell courses through that website, and I have never read any of them. I just utilize the quiz to try to identify which one I am. And like Danny mentioned earlier, there's four attachment style. I'm gonna go over them in a very high level. There are ambivalent attachment, also known as Anxious attachment or anxious preoccupied attachment, and the second one it's called avoidant attachment, also known as dismissive attachment or anxious avoidant attachment. Then there's disorganized attachment, also known as fearful avoidant attachment. Lastly, but not least, we have secure attachment, 
One fact that really fascinated me about the attachment theory is that it's formed when we are babies. It's usually formed from age zero to two. Oh, isn't it literally so cool? babies? Yeah, we literally don't even know anything, and it has such a lasting impact as we're adults. This also reminds me our therapy episode. It's my therapist, just a friend I pay for. Because the attachment theory is talking about childhood and how it impacts us now, so learning about attachment theory similar to therapy sessions, it's about learning about ourselves, how we behave, and what our patterns are, and explaining the why. Wait, question: Does this bond have to be between the ages of zero and two? Can it be later on? Essentially, this whole attachment theory. It's based on all the psychology research that if a child is brought up in a warm, nurturing environment where the caregivers are responsive to the child's emotional needs and physical needs, a secure bond is formed, aka the secure attachment. The attachment stage has four. So there's the pre-attachment. So it's basically when a person's born, they basically don't know anything. They have no attachment. They don't show any particular attachment to any person around them, and then the next stage is indiscriminate. So it's from six week to seven month. The baby infant will start to show preference for a primary or secondary caregiver. It could be your parents. It could be if you're nursing home, the person take care of you the most, or your grandparents. If that's the case, the third stage is discriminate. Like the name, the baby start pick and choose, place favoritism to either one of the primary caregiver or the other, and you can tell by that they will protest when you pull baby away from their primary attachment. They will show by crying because this is separation anxiety, and they will show a lot of anxiety around stranger as well.、Mm -hmm. And the next stage is multiple, which is the final stage. It's when they grow bonds to other caregiver. This could be siblings or people around them. Wow, this is so interesting. How is this? Circle back to our butterfly feeling. Essentially, because Jenny was also telling about all this anxiety, this feeling. Do they like us as much as we do? It kind of flagged to me the anxious attachment style. Earlier, we talk about the secure attachment. As you can tell, that if a child is being emotionally and physically met their needs, then they grow up feeling really assured of themselves. They don't need validation from others. Not that they wouldn't appreciate compliments, but they don't necessarily need another person to make them sure of themselves.、Mm -hmm. They also are more engaging, and like their social pattern is very consistent. So as you can tell, the other three other types don't have the secure in their name. So you can tell all the other three types are insecure in one way or the other, either、mm -hmm. because. When they're young, they didn't meet their physical need or emotional needs or both. So before we talk more about the cause and the symptom, I do kind of want to talk about the quiz we took. So the quiz is provided by Tahiris Gibson, as I mentioned earlier. So it was set up as twenty-eight truths and fours questions. And when I was doing this, I wasn't. Doing this on purpose, but I just like know some answer. Me and Danny will have the literal opposite answer. 
Oh, really? Oh, you were yeah. thinking of me? Yeah. <laughs> Always. Honored. Yeah, I, I took the quiz too because you sent me the link in preparation for this episode. I don't know about you, but there were certain... So basically each question, all you have to do is answer true or false. It's pretty right. simple. You're not ranking or... You know, like those other multiple choice where it's like very likely, somewhat likely. Yeah. It's just like very confusing. The answer choices were fairly easy. There's only true or false. But I did think some statements were really hard to answer because, for example, I would think the first sentence was really true to me, but then the second sentence, not so much. So then I didn't know if I should say this was completely true or kind of false because the whole oh. thing didn't ring true. So I, there were a couple questions that I really wasn't sure how to answer. Yeah, let me read three statements from this quiz to just get our listener a little bit taste of it. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if these are the statements you're referring to because the ones I pick are rather short. So number one, I often put other people in my life on a big pedestal. Parentheses, partner, friends, family. Wait, what did you answer for this line? I'm curious. True. Oh, you do? Yeah. I put false. I'm I know. Sure. I know. Sure. Okay. <laughs> like, this is so true for me. People know me. Even at work, I put people who I look up to on this pedestal as if they can do no wrong. Mm. <laughs> and sometimes I do the same to my friends. I will be thinking, oh, Danny would never this happen. Or another close friend of mine who is also my coworker. Whenever something I did wrong at work, if I made a mistake, I would just think in my head, ABC would never this happen. Only happen to me. This is all my fault. Like I'm very much thinking my friend very highly that they can never do wrong. That this they would never let this happen. This only would happen because of me. You know that kind of drama. Yeah, I'm the opposite. <laughs> What do you think? I don't put people on a pedestal. If anything, I'm too quick to find people's faults. Interesting. Which, which <laughs> actually doesn't even sound like a good option either. That sounds like its own set of problems, which it is. <laughs> That's why I'm in therapy. <laughs> well, the short answer is that neither Mickey or Danny are secure attachment type. Number two, I feel very upset when others infringe on my need for space or time alone. I said true for this one. I said false. I also know you said yes for this one. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. When I was answering this, I was just... Because I always... We talk about this on our pod a lot that me and Jenny have very opposite personality or like perspective. Obviously experience as well. Wait. When well, you say it like that, it's like, why are we friends? <laughs> because opposite attract duh. No, but okay. Honestly, I think, yes, that's true. But I also think we're friends because we have shared values like I think our values are yeah, very like aligned yeah. but yeah, yeah I I do need my personal space and yeah. and you'll know when I need my personal space <laughs> number three I would prefer to spend most of my free time with my partner if I were to be in a romantic relationship it would be hard for me to want to do things separately okay this one is an example Oh, one okay. that I found hard to answer. Wait, can you repeat the first sentence? I would prefer to spend most of my free time with my partner if I were to be in a romantic relationship. And then say the second one, sorry. <laughs> it would be hard for me to want to do things separately. 
Okay, so he, this is this is it. The first sentence I think is true. If I were in a romantic relationship, I'm sorry to all my friends. I would still love to hang out with you, but <laughs> I'm someone that does not like asking people to make plans in advance. Like it's just, I don't know what it is. It's actually not that much work, so I really don't know. But I just don't like asking. So when I'm in a romantic relationship, I see my partner as someone. Who by choosing to date me is signing up to do things with me? So I would want to do a lot of things like shared activities with my partners and even with friends. Maybe invite this partner along. But the second sentence I found to not be true at all. Like I would not get annoyed, mad, anxious, whatever it is, if my partner and I choose to do things separately. Like I would respect that. I would want that because I don't want us to hang out all the time. So that is that question. I remember it was one of the ones that I didn't know how to answer because one half of it, I would say true, and the other half I would think false. So I actually don't even remember what I chose for this. I, I I get what you mean because for me, I think what the second part is hard to agree on is that it will be hard for me to want to do things separately. So basically, I end up choosing true. So how I end up interpreting it was that. It's not hard for me to do things on my own. It's hard for me to want to do things separately. I think the emphasis is on want for me.、Okay. So when I find something cool and new, I always wanted to do it with a person I'm in a romantic relationship with. Like right away, I wouldn't see. Oh, there's an art exhibition coming out. I want to go this one by myself. I would immediately thought I want to go with this person. Okay. Because I think what you're saying is slightly different from the statement in the terms. Because you're saying that you can respect them, want to do things differently, and you can still do things on your own. But I don't think this is about the agency. It's about like your first thought. Like, what do you want to do? Like, what would you prefer right away when you find something interesting, exciting? Yeah. Okay. In that case, I would lean more towards n- false. Oh really?、Me. Yeah. I mean, I.、Uh... It's so hard because I'm not in a relationship, so vision. I'm, <laughs> I'm just kidding, but no, I think it would be great to have my partner there to share these memories with. But I'm someone where if I hang out with my partner all the time and we don't have anything going on for us separately, I tend to. It sounds harsh, but like lose respect for the person a little bit. I like that we have our own lives, our own jobs, our own friends outside of each other. But I also love that we can bring that together. You know, if I go to like a work function, be able to bring my partner along. If I hang out with friends, be able to bring my partner along. I think the first sentence to me is almost more like a laziness thing for me because I just don't like asking a bunch of people like, "Hey, do you want to go to this concert with me?" Oh, it's it's more just easier to assume my、sense. partner will go because. They're my partner, and be like, I want to go. I bought the tickets. You want to come? And then if they say no, maybe I'll go down the list and put in some effort there. But yeah, I think it's less of a I'm not able to like be alone type of thing. Yeah, yeah, I totally、okay. get that. Wow, we've answered opposite for all of these, right? <laughs> so far, it's really cool. So how the quiz result is set up? It's similar to the five love languages. If you have listened to the episode, you will know what I mean. If you don't, this is a sign. Go listen to it. As we introduced earlier, there's four attachment style, and this quiz shows the result in percentages how much you are in each one of them. 
because it's worth mentioning, just because you are not 100% secure attachment style, this is not a death sentence. This is why there's so many psychologists specialized in attachment theory, because these attachment styles you have can be changed. It can be moved around. This is why therapy is helpful. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to share mine first. Okay. I honestly want to guess yours because I felt really confident about your answer. Okay, yeah. Guess. Not the percentage. I'm not that good. Just the order? Okay. Yeah, I think your primary one. Wait, hang on. Can we all just put out there this is another test of friendship? Oh, drum roll. <laughs> so I think Danny's primary attachment style is the avoidance attachment, aka dismissive attachment or anxious avoidance attachment. I think her secondary attachment is the anxious preoccupy. Okay. What, what is that? Okay. Sounds like I'm not right. No. <laughs> oh, okay. Never mind. This is why I'm not a psychologist or a therapist. Okay. I don't want to guess yours because I actually don't really know what the other three mean. I think secure, mm. I have a pretty solid idea based on what you were describing earlier and also by the name itself. The other three, the name itself is not super clear to me what kind of person this describes. So I'll give you my actual results from mm. this quiz that I took. But you being the expert, I actually would love for you to actually tell me what this means because I don't actually know what these attachment styles actually look like in like real life. So yeah. my first one at 38% is actually secure, which I was pretty Ooh, shocked at. Love that. My second one, 31%, is fearful avoidance. And then 19% is the one you said first, which is dismissive avoidant. And then the last one at 13% is anxious preoccupied. Ooh. Also, this doesn't fully add up to 100%. I think it's actually 111%. But we will, we will forgive that. <laughs> oh, mine does. Mine adds up to 99. So I think they just cut out the decimal thingy. Okay. I'm very different in answer results. So okay. my number one's tied between secure and anxious preoccupy. So I'm 35% secure. Honestly, when I was doing this quiz, I can tell my therapy is working because I know some answer, I will answer differently. There's one statement was saying, I deserve a healthy, loving relationship. I know the past Mickey will say no to that. But today, Mickey, it's like, oh, of yeah. course, yes. So I really credit this 35% largely to my therapy sessions and to my self-love journey. We love a journey. Anxious preoccupied, it's also 35%. Fearful avoidance is 29%. And that leaves me 0% of dismissive avoidance. Zero? Wow. Yeah. It's like that love language of 3% of the physical touch. Yeah. That's so interesting. Okay. You, didn't, you didn't score anything at all for that one. Right? Earlier you were saying how you have heard about them before and then you always assume you are one or the other. Does this quiz make you feel more seen because it's not that you're just one or the other, that you're a combination? Yeah, because I think in the past when people have just at a very high level described it to me, I could see certain things within, within each one that I was doing or exhibiting. So in some instances, it's like, yeah, I actually do feel very secure. Like, this is me. And other ones, which I now don't recall 
what the, I don't know if symptoms is the right word, but what each one looks like when it manifests itself. I would also think, oh yeah, I do that sometimes too. But then by the end of it, it's like, wait, I just checked yes on all four. And I think I thought that everyone just had one main attachment style. And because I identified with a, with all of them, actually, I didn't know if that meant like something was wrong with me or maybe I didn't know myself. But taking this quiz, it is helpful to see that in some ways, well, maybe not in your case because you have 0%, we can <laughs> exhibit different degrees of each one. And I do wonder maybe if it's situational or the type of relationship you're in. Yeah, I'd love to know what, like, what is actually fearful avoidance? I do really want to go through these one by one because I'm so passionate about this topic. I'm still learning a lot about it. So let's starting with the fear for avoidance as you have asked. So typically, these children displays a confusing mix of behavior. They are seen disorientated, dazed, or confused. They might avoid or resist parents. It's because there's a lack of a clear attachment patterns. It's likely linked to inconsistent caregiver behavior. So this is basically saying that sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not. They're physically there, but they might be emotionally not there or vice versa. Because a child doesn't have full cognition that we do now that we can recognize, oh, this happened, it's not because they don't love us. Or XYZ happens because they, for example, say a baby has their, one of their caregiver left their home to go to far away. This is essentially this caregiver's way showing love to the baby and to the family. But the baby wouldn't know that. The baby was just thinking, oh, that person left me. I'm not loved by that person. That's all that baby can think of. That baby cannot recognize this is still an action of love. Often in adulthood, people with this attachment style are extremely inconsistent in their behavior and have a hard time trusting others. I feel attacked. <laughs> it's funny yes. because, because this is rooted in infancy. Like There's no way for me to actually say what my experience was at age two because I don't have those memories. But I can yeah. identify some of those things in later childhood, which is why I was asking, does it have to be zero to two? Because I feel like sometimes traumas happen later in life that also really impacts and shapes how you are as an adult. And I know that's something like I'm working and talking through in my therapy. So it's really interesting that the zero to two phase, because obviously that's not memories that I can recollect to be able to say yes or no. But it's funny because obviously a lot of this is suggesting our caretakers kind of did this to us. So automatically <laughs> I feel very defensive of my parents and wanting to say like, oh no, I don't think they like were doing that. But it's also like, well, I don't actually know because I don't have those memories. I mean, I love that first of all, because that's because you love your parents. Like we do love our parents. And as a adults, we recognize our parents love us. I think what I understand attachment theory is that it's not about what's truly happening. It's not about if your parents love you or not. It's really, I actually said this once to my therapist, I was asking her if infants are actually narcissistic, <laughs> because they are. I think that kind of explains this attachment theory, because it's not about what's actually happening. This is what we talk about quite a lot. Like two things can be true. In the example I was giving as well, that person's parents do love them. 
do want the best for them, are trying their best to provide them physically. But as a narcissistic infant, they don't give a shit about that. They only need to know in their little bubble if their caregiver is there present and if their emotional and physical needs is being completely met. Because I do agree with you because I fear for avoidance is also 29% for me. I think my parents love me very much. You can tell from last episode, I'm very much spoiled. <laughs> but this doesn't mean as an infant, Mickey, I actually don't know. Like, I don't know what the infant Mickey feel like, which is why I think it's really fascinating about the theory. So what are some things like a fearful avoidant person would do? This type of attachment style in adulthood is that they're often unable to regulate emotion or they're chronically vigilant and anxious. They're feeling ineffective and helpless in life. They have poor goal-oriented behavior and they have difficult with bonding opening up to. Which maybe this list is where you were saying earlier, oh, that part's true, but that part's really not me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was already right? thinking that as you're reading these. Yeah, I think there's no list can comprehend a whole person, especially me and Danny both have this attachment style, but our percentage is different and also have to take into consideration of the other ones we have and may not have. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about dismissive avoidance. So dismissive avoidant attachment. Children with this attachment style tend to avoid parents or caregiver, showing no preference between the caregiver and a complete stranger. Obviously, this is very extreme. So this attachment style might be a result of abusive or neglective caregiver. Children who are punished for relying on caregiver will learn to avoid seeking help in future. I don't know. I think these percentages just kind of confuses me a little bit because it's mm. almost saying you are these things if your parents or your caregiver treated you this way or that's how you perceive their treatment of you. Mm. But then how can it be true that they're treating me in all these four ways that I exhibit all four of these to different degrees? From what I'm reading, I think there's just multiple causes to it, but these are the general ones I'm reading out. So this might not be true for everyone. So generally, children with this attachment style, they grow up, they're relatively more self-sufficient and independent. They usually think other people will reject their emotion anyway, so why bother trying to express them? This is almost a strategy behind avoidant attachment style. Some signs of this attachment style as adult is that they tend to avoid intimacy with others, prevent the distance, and tendency to pull away as soon as someone tries to get close. They have a high self-esteem and not relying on others for reassurance or emotional support. Okay, I can see why you gave me this one as my top. When I was reading this, I was like, this is why this is 0% for me. Oh my gosh. <laughs> everything on this list, I'm like, this is not me. This is not me. Because the other sound of the other list, I don't see myself completely. Yeah. But I will see, okay, I can see a version of that of me. It also talk about how this attachment style people in adulthood, they have difficulty trusting and relying on others, believing that you don't need emotional intimacy in your life, appear as strong, confident, and in control. I don't know about all the others, but when I think about Danny, I do think about strong, confident, and in control. Yeah, but... In this context, it's not like a good thing because it's very standoffish and it's almost like a, I don't need you. I can do everything by myself. 
Mm, it does seem like that. And last but not least, is the anxious, ambivalent attachment style, or known as the anxious preoccupied attachment style. These children are very distressed when a parent leaves. Ambivalent attachment style is considered uncommon, affecting estimates seven to fifteen percent U.S. children. As a result of poor parental availability, these children cannot depend on their primary giver to be there when they need them. So, as an adult, they seek intimacy and closeness. They're highly emotional and dependent on others. The presence of the loved one appears to be remedy for their strong emotional needs. I feel like this one's what you were saying earlier. Sometimes really confusing because how can these all be true at some time? Because this one is almost the very opposite. Mm-hmm. Of dismissive avoidance attachment, right? I think that's why I'm kept reading on this. I'm kept trying to learn more about it because on the channel I mentioned earlier, Tyus Gibson, she talk about diving into each attachment style and how they behave in romantic relationship and even how they act in sex. I don't know. I think I need to do more reading on this. To be honest, the lines between these seem. Not super clear cut to me because I'm still not super clear how, for example, someone can be dismissive avoidant but also have qualities of anxious preoccupied. When it's saying the source of it is how you were brought up by your caretaker, it's a little confusing to me how your caregiver or guardian can be not emotionally available. Yet, why did I score on the secure? Yeah, I'm just not super clear on that. I don't know. I'm not. You know, obviously, a psychologist or trained in that field whatsoever. But I definitely do think a lot of our issues and behavior patterns as adults stem from things that happened in our past experiences, such as childhood. But I personally am also very wary to put all the emphasis into childhood. Like basically, my life was already defined at ages zero to two. It defined who I am. It defined my entire identity, type of relationships I'm gonna have. Because, for me personally, a lot of the things that I'm working on in therapy is trauma that happened later in life. And I, you know, I don't want to go into all that. To hear, you know, professionals say, "Oh, well, most of this happened at this stage of your life." It almost, to me, invalidates my experiences later in life by saying. This isn't as important in shaping mm, how you perceive you the world and how you go about the world. So I think I would personally like to do a little more research and digging. I do think it's a really interesting concept, but I almost don't want to solely rely on this as an end-all, be-all source to identify my issues and get to like a one hundred percent secure place. It almost seems like these attachment styles are very similar to codependency and the ways they manifest. Again, not an expert, so I'm not gonna go into <laughs> all that and mislead anyone. But I can see how it can be helpful in different relationships, like friendships, or with a romantic partner, to understand what their attachment style is, so that you can kind of understand their behaviors and why they're treating you a certain way. Right. I felt like I didn't clarify that the attachment style can be shifted over time. And that's also why there's a lot of psychologists actually specialize in attachment theory, as a, not a treatment but a method to help people change because it does shift. That's why I was earlier saying that I credit like 35% of my secure percentage to my therapy session, and 
I think similar to the therapy, I love learning more about myself just to learn why my behavioral pattern is. Circle back to the beginning of this episode, the feeling of butterflies in the stomach. I think from my point of view, when I was reading or learning more about my personal attachment style, I really felt like because I'm the anxious attachment style, the butterflies in the stomach feeling is really a red flag to me because usually it's a person that makes me anxious. Yeah, I think it also makes sense because I was also saying in the beginning how I don't normally get the butterflies feeling, which is why I partly felt excited by it because I took that to be like a positive sign. But it also makes sense because as you're describing each attachment style, I do see the butterfly anxiety. Does he like me? Does he not like me? What is he thinking about me now? I do associate that more closely to the anxious preoccupied, which I do exhibit some, but it's the last one of all mm-hmm. the others. So maybe that's why I don't feel it frequently. It was really interesting that you mentioned it being a red flag because that was never something I thought about before. And I almost see our media and pop culture glamorizing this butterfly in the stomach feeling. That's a sign this is your person and you need to yeah. like go after this person and be with this person because they're giving you the butterfly feelings. But then when you position it as a feeling of anxiety, like an insecure attachment style, I think that really flips it because once you said that, it was immediately thinking, oh yeah, why am I so anxious? Because if I was secure, I wouldn't be worried if this person yeah. is responding back to me or what they think about me. But clearly there's some level of insecurity there, whether it's it's probably a combination, honestly, of myself, but also what this person is doing to make me feel this relationship is not stable right now and I need to be kept on my toes. So I think that is how we should be viewing the butterflies, which is not as a good thing, but as a potential red flag that this person may be a flaky person or... And not like in general, but for you, you know? I second. <laughs>